Welcome to Lumpen Week in Review, the show that covers the past week of news, happenings, and programs presented on Lumpen Radio. This week, we discussed the mayoral race with candidate Tony Preckwinkle, talked about the legacy of police torture in our city, and learned about the strike roiling the CSO. All this was the Keeper's Box, Are We Cool Yet?, and the Trump Diaries, all only on the Lumpen Week in Review from March 29, 2019. Mario Smith and Jamie Trecker talked about the future of Chicago with Tony Preckwinkle, the president of Cook County and a candidate for mayor. Lagging badly in polls to Lori Lightfoot, Preckwinkle discussed her experience and her record, as well as the historic nature of this election. News from the service entrance airs every Thursday at 2 p.m. This is WLPNLP Chicago 105.5 FM Lumpin' Radio. You're listening to news from the service entrance, the radio show. And at this time, I would love to welcome my next guest. She is Cook County Board President and Mayoral Hopeful, President Tony Preckwinkle. Hey, how you doing, Tony? Hi, Mario. Good to talk to you. You too. First question out of the gate. It has been a really long campaign cycle for you and for all the candidates and now you and and Lori Lightfoot as you get into this last weekend of campaigning if that's your plan what exactly will you be doing this weekend in in terms of uh, getting that word out so that folks who may be undecided or decided how they would would, uh, act moving forward going toward Tuesday well thank you very much Mario we're we're working hard to meet as many of uh, of our residents as we possibly can and we've got a uh, a great operation of, of folks knocking on doors and making phone calls and phone banks. And, you know, I really appreciate all the good work of our staff and volunteers in this campaign. It's been, um, as you said, a long haul, but we're looking forward to Tuesday and victory. This past um, week, uh, one of the questions that came up in your debate was about uh, Kim Fox's involvement or non-involvement in the Jesse Smollett um, situation. And you, you, you answered it succinctly last night. I'm just wondering if you could go back to that. And, and again, how how does this not happen in the future where, where someone does not, uh, and it's not a matter of serving time or not, but not, not even go to trial for what happened. Um, if, if you're elected mayor, I mean, would, would, you have the power of suggestion, if nothing else, in a situation like that. How would you advise the attorney general to act in a case like that? Well, first of all, Mario, you know, I'm not a lawyer and I'm not the state's attorney. So, you know, I my view of this is that it's important that we be as transparent and accountable as possible. So the state's attorney needs to be forthcoming about the reasons for the dismissal of the charges. And although I'm a firm believer in judicial discretion, in this instance, I would want the judge to uh, unseal the records in the case and make them available to the public because you know I think I think that that, that uh, questions need to be answered and and the best way to do that is for the state's attorney to, to share more information and for the judge to unseal those records. When you look around the city, particularly on the north side of Chicago, there is an overabundance of development. The north side and downtown seem to be thriving, while the south and west sides of Chicago have remained pretty much dormant for the last 10 years or more than that. Um, what is your immediate plan to bring some lifeblood back onto the south and west sides of the city? Well, first of all, Mario, you know, I'm, I'm grateful for the opportunity that I had to serve the people of the 4th Ward on the south side for almost 20 years. So I'm, I'm pretty 
pretty familiar and uh, embedded in, in the south side. And I know that we have to make investments in the south and west side if our city is going to thrive. We can't focus only on downtown and the north side and think that we're going to have a, a world-class city. So, you know, there's three things I always talk about, Mario. And, you know, I, I know from experience as, as a local elected official how important they are. If our city is going to thrive, we need to invest in public education in our neighborhood schools. We need to invest in housing, affordable rental housing in our communities. And last but not least, we need to be sure that our streets are safe. And, you know, this is the hard work that I did with members of my community for almost 20 years. So, you know, as I said, it's, it's really important that we, we have good neighborhood schools in all of our communities. And right now you can pretty much predict high-performing schools by zip codes. And, and, and that, that, that is never going to work, that kind of inequality. We have to invest in neighborhood schools on the south and west side and be sure that they not only have good teachers, but that they also have you know, social workers and nurses and psychologists, the support professionals that we really need to be, to be, uh, to have the wraparound services for our kids to do with. Um, you know, the second thing is, I think it's really important that, that we invest in rental housing in our, in our neighborhood. You know, I, I, I heard a story last week about how in, in San Francisco, a, a one-bedroom apartment is $3,000 a month. Well, you know, we can't have cities in which only the privileged can afford to live. We need to be sure that there are places for working families. So investing in rental housing in all our neighborhoods, and not just rental housing, but economic development, trying to support our small and medium-sized businesses with, with the city-sponsored grant programs and, and micro-loan programs. And, and you know, I, I've got to say that when I was alderman, the, the two questions that I were asked, I was asked by people who wanted to move in the ward were, are the streets safe and are the schools good? So we really have to work with police commanders and officers and community residents to, to, to try to address the public safety challenges that our neighborhoods face. But we, we have to invest in our neighborhoods on the south and west side if we're going to have a vital city. Uh, Madam President, this is Jamie Trecker. I just wanted to follow up on your uh, statements on schools. Obviously, there's been a rush to close schools, predominantly in African-American neighborhoods in this city, under the last administration. Would you reverse that policy, and would you reopen some of these schools? Well, what I've said is that we ought to have a moratorium on charter schools, a moratorium on school closing, and an elected school board. I can't believe that an elected school board would have decided to close 50 schools in a single year. And, and virtually all of those schools in African-American communities. And the troubling thing is that the University of Chicago has done some research on what happened to the young people in those closed schools. And they went to nearby schools that were just as under-resourced as the schools that they left. And what happened was there was an increase in the achievement gap between African-American and majority students. So school closures are a last resort. I, I said we, had a, we should have a moratorium on them, as well as a moratorium on, on new charter schools. So that's and an elected school board. That's kind of a trifecta of my uh, reform agenda, an elected school board, a moratorium on school closing, and a moratorium on new charters. But we have to really, we have to really invest in our neighborhood schools, and that means we've got to have a, a funding formula that takes into account not just uh, per-pupil based um, uh, commitments to schools, but commitments based on need as well. President Preckwinkle, this is Michaela Blaze. I am, um, full disclosure, I'm the executive director of <clears throat> the Judicial Accountability Pack, and we gave you an award <laughs> a few months back for all of your help um, 
in helping us um, hashtag dump Coglin and get rid of a racist judge off the bench. So thank you uh, so much for your help there. Um, I, I wonder if you could tell us what would you do? Your opponent has said she wanted to make the the schools that are closed, maybe mini police academies. Did you have some other ideas on what you might do with those empty buildings? Well, first of all, thank you for the award and thank you for your good work around our efforts to um, deny retention to Matthew Coughlin. You know, we could not have done that without the support of the activists. And the combination of the support of activists and the Democratic Party denied an assistant state's attorney who uh, was part of a, a wrongful conviction of two young men who spent more than 20 years in jail, as you're, as you're well aware. Uh, and, and that, you know, I, I want to thank you because this is the first time that I can remember that we were successful, again, working with advocates in denying somebody retention. And that's not a small thing. I think that that sent a message to the judiciary about the fact that we were going to pay attention to their conduct, not only on the bench, but prior to their uh, ascension to the bench. So I appreciate that. Now, repeat your question for me. Um, so, um, and just on that note, just to circle back, you jumped on board really quickly and without a bunch of cajoling, and you got the whole um, board, uh, the Dems, all. We got 100% um, endorsement from the Democratic Party, and that was all you. So thanks. Um, but my question was, um, your opposition said uh, of the school buildings that were closed, um, she was planning to turn them into mini police academies. Did you have any other ideas on what to do with those closed buildings? Well, first of all, let me just say that's a terrible idea. <laughs> okay. Well, let's, let's, get that, let's get that off the table. You know, here's the challenge. 50 schools were closed, and um, another radio station, WBEZ, reported that 38 of the buildings, 38 of the buildings are still vacant. Now, the main business, uh, the mission of Chicago Public Schools is not disposal of real estate. We let it turn these, these schools over to the Cook County Land Bank or some other entity. Mm. And we have, to, we have to work with community residents to see what's needed. I mean, maybe it's a community center. Maybe it's a, a health clinic. But the idea that we would put many police academies in neighborhoods where we've closed the public schools is really appalling to me. Um, we need to engage the communities. We need to work with them to see you know, what, what they believe their needs are and, and what's the most appropriate use, reuse of these facilities. But, you know, many police academies, I don't know where that came from. Okay, and, and another question on a, on a different topic, just talking about your campaign in general. So I'm a political consultant. I work on campaigns um, all over Cook County um, in Illinois. Um, is there anything, looking at the numbers right now, is there anything you would do differently? Like if you were <clears throat> talking to Tony... Um, three months ago about her campaign strategy. Looking at the numbers today, is there anything that you would do differently in, in terms of just your actual campaign? You know, we've worked hard over the last uh, seven months or so, um, you know, and I'm really pleased with the work of our, our volunteers and our staff. Um, you know, we couldn't, frankly, um, have anticipated that things would play out in the way that they have. First of all, it should be 14 candidates for mayor. I mean, I'm not sure that anybody anticipated that. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, and in the first round, um, we ran entirely, uh, entirely uh, a positive uh, commercial, and and my opponent at the same time was was swinging pretty good both at me and at uh, at Bill Daly. Um, so it, it, there were some surprises, needless to say, on in February, 
Um, and we have worked hard ever since to, to try to reach as many voters as we can who um, who supported other candidates and uh, to try to secure their support. So this has been um, this has been in lots of ways uh, a surprising election cycle. I think you'd agree. Uh, it's nuts. There's no everybody's like um, through this whole. Um, process asking me which way to go and it, it's um when there were all those candidates when especially aldermanic wise it's just been so hard to call and and so hard to figure out what how which way the wind is blowing any given day i think nice. um, president prickwinkle i i want to ask you about Rahm emanuel he has served two terms as mayor of chicago without being able to really look into how much damage the city is has endured based on what you can see with the naked eye you're elected mayor you take the office in may what are some of the first things that you plan on doing as the mayor of chicago well i think the first thing is to have a plan uh for the summer you know i was alderman and i will tell you the truth i used to pray for cold and rainy summers um keep people indoors <laughs> mm. um uh, we have to have a plan to deal with the, the seasonal violence that plagues our city. I mean, frankly, the warmer it gets and the more people are out and about, of course, the more challenges we have, um, which is why I began by saying I used to pray for cold and rainy summers. But in, in conjunction, not just with the police department, but the community-based organizations that uh, are focused on violence prevention and anti-recidivism and restorative justice, you know, we've got to talk to those groups, bring them together with the police, so groups that serve returning citizens, and develop a plan for the summer uh, to ensure that we do everything we can to minimize violence on the streets. That's the challenge, and, and that would be the first priority. The second priority would be, um, you know, working with the Chicago Public Schools around um, uh, not only contracts with teachers, but plans for the fall. And as I said, uh, given the fact that I'm committed to an elected school board, part of that planning has to be the transition to an elected school board. How concerned are you about the pension situation here in the city? And what is your plan, short-term, long-term, to, to tackle that? Well, first of all, you know, clearly city government needs resources. And I always talk about the importance of having a graduated income tax at the state level. A graduated income tax so that revenues are raised as equitably as possible because the lens through which we should look this, at, at these challenges is an equity lens. So graduated income tax at the state level to pay their bills and also to, uh, to, to have revenue raised for cities, towns, and villages raised as equitably as possible because the state shares revenue with local units of government. The second thing is, you know, when I was when I came into office in 2010, we worked really hard. We had a difficult budget uh, crisis, 487 million, uh, almost 500 million dollar budget gap to close. And 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 frankly, the challenge in the in the city will be in the same neighborhood, uh, but it, it starts from a much bigger base. So we had 487 million dollar gap to close. We brought in all the separately elected officials. Everybody cut their budget 15 percent. 15%, we refinanced some of our debt. We laid off 1,500 people in one of the most difficult decisions of my career. Uh, so we've, we've been down this road before, and I know both how hard it is and how necessary it is to focus on shared sacrifice and, and to understand that there's no magic bullet, no single solution. Um, 
we we just have to we just have to work hard to address the challenges. And you know, you bring in you bring in all the department heads and tell them that they have to make cuts, and you have to try to figure out how to do that in a way that minimizes the impact on on programs and services. So it's a it's a challenge I faced before, and I'm confident that we can address again. Do you agree with the notion? And, and I guess this is more of a setup toward the last question, was ha- which hasn't happened yet. But do you agree with the notion? Um, the, the the trend around the country has, seems to be people not wanting career politicians in places of power anymore, and getting people who uh, may be inexperienced but fresh face, new voice, etc. Um, th- this isn't the kind of race where where. I, 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 I guess I'm speaking more for the undecided. There are people who are down with having change, and then there are people who are satisfied with having something that they know. When you're talking to people this weekend, how are you? What is your plan to convince folks that the the preferred way and the the way of least resistance is to vote for you because you know how to govern versus voting for Lori Lightfoot, who has not held a government position. Well, you know, there are a number of things I'd, I'd say. First of all, being mayor of the city of Chicago is not an entry-level job. You know, we, we in the state of Illinois, you know, Bruce Rauner was elected somebody who's never held a government office before, and that sure didn't turn out very well. Uh, you know, and I would argue electing Donald Trump, somebody who's never held an elective office before, didn't turn out very well either. So, you know, there's, there's the notion that you need change, but change can be bad as well as good. Um, and furthermore, you know, the experience that I've had is... is is taking change into action, transforming local schools, communities, and, and our, our streets. That's, that's transformative, that's change in action as opposed to change at a podium. It's easy to talk about change. It's hard to make change. And my opponent has suggested that change is easy. It's just a matter of resolve. But anybody who's tried to make changes knows how difficult it is. I mean, you know, for many of us, we can't keep our New Year's resolutions, let alone, you know, <laughs> change our public schools and, and transform our neighborhoods and make our streets safer. It's, it's difficult, time-consuming work that requires patience and persistence and courage. There is always a race, in, in, if you will, between the council and the mayor. It's either strong mayor, weak council, weak mayor, strong council. You could walk into a city council that may be the most progressive city council in decades, how do you propose to be able to work with progressives who may have a different agenda than you? Um, and, and considering what's at stake, water, schools, police, pension, and the 16 other things that are on the list of to do for you, how, how do you plan on working with a progressive city council? Well, first of all, you should remember that I was one of the founders of the Progressive Caucus when I was in the city council. <laughs> I actually did know that. So, no, you didn't. Yes, Thanks I did. I knew it. <laughs> so working working with the progressive city council is not a, not a challenge. You know, so that's my pride. Well, so, well, not to cut you off, but to be fair, this is a different kind of progressive candidate that's running in, in these automatic races. This isn't the um, bucking the, the, the Verdoliac 26. This is a, a Bernie Sanders-esque kind of progressive mm. automatic candidate and i think to be fair to that notion how would you work with that group of progressives well you know when, when i was in the city council uh i sponsored 
and worked hard for every single affordable housing and living wage ordinance that came before the body. So in terms of um, leading the charge in a progressive agenda, that's what I did when I was in the body. Um, and, you know, I think that, that living wages, affordable housing are surely part of a progressive agenda uh, now just as they were then. And those are the kinds of issues that, you know, I, I look forward to working with the council on. You know, I've, always, I've already promised uh, Alderman Carlos Ramirez Rosa that I would support his efforts to end carve-out of our welcoming city ordinance, to be sure that our Chicago Police Department is not cooperating with ICE. I've committed to ending the gang database, which has 128,000 people on it, 11% of our African-American community and 4% of the Latinx community. So, you know, I've already committed both at my work as an alderman around affordable housing and living wages and my commitment in this campaign to strengthening our welcoming city ordinance and ending the gang database, I've already committed to a number of the, the priorities or principles of, uh, of progressives. So, you know, I think that, and, and frankly, building coalitions and, and, um, and bringing people on board to move an agenda is what I did when I was in city council. So that's, that's work that I can rely on. One of the major challenges that whoever is elected mayor, whether it's you or your opponent, is the seemingly intractable violence in some of our neighborhoods. Um, there's a, a great deal of debate about how to go about um, addressing it. And some people, in fact, at the University of Chicago have studied the issue, have concluded there, there may be no way of addressing it. But it is going to be something that you're going to have to tackle and you're going to be judged on. What is your plan to try to address some of the systemic violence that we've seen in our neighborhoods, particularly in our summer months? Well, I talked earlier about the importance of, of working uh, not just with police, but with community-based organizations that work in our neighborhoods and struggle with the challenges of addressing um, violence prevention, anti-recidivism, restorative justice, and then serving uh, returning citizens. But, you know, early on in my teaching career, and I was a teacher for 10 years, one of my students was killed in a drive-by shooting. And I know how devastating, how devastating this violence uh, can be. It was, it was very traumatic for our school community and for this young woman's friends and neighbors and family. Um, and, you know, everyone has the right to feel safe in their home and in their community. And the way in which we, we ensure that safety is to ensure collaboration between police and community. And unfortunately, in many of our neighborhoods, there is not a lot of trust between police and community residents. So we have to address that, both by investing more in community policing, investing in better training for our police officers, investing in, in supervision of our police officers, and then holding them accountable for solving our most serious crimes. We have, you know, we have an abysmal rate. It's called a closure rate for murders. It means you arrest somebody in a case. And nationally, out of every 100 murders, there's 62 or 63 arrests. But in Chicago, out of every 100 murders, there are 15 arrests. And in the case of shootings, it's less than 10 out of every 100. Now, you know, if you know in your neighborhood that there's no way that police are going to uh, bring anybody to justice for the murder of your brother or your uncle or your dad or your friend, the temptation, of course, is to take the law in your own hands and to seek revenge or retribution on your own. And that just contributes to a cycle of violence. So we've got to we've got to bring community residents and police together. We've got to um, invest more in community policing, as I said, training, supervision. We've got to hold our police officers accountable, and we also have to work on changing the culture of the police department. 
you know, when, when all of us know there's a code of silence in the police department and there's racism in the police department, it's a real challenge um, for the community to have confidence in the police. So, but, and you can't address challenges you won't acknowledge. So the police superintendent has to acknowledge that these are challenges and to move forward to try to address them. Uh, excuse me. Hey, it's Michaela again. Um, so I want to know if you've got any ideas on how we move forward. Um, there's a big question about aldermanic privilege. Um, as mayor, would you do work to limit the power of the alderman? Um, or or would you go ahead and, and, and sort of let things remain as they are? There's, you know, obviously people are a little bit concerned, particularly after the charges against Alderman Burke, that um, many of the aldermen are using their influence to shake down people for money. So some some improvements need to be made on that. What would you do to limit um, the power of the aldermen without um, taking away their ability to really address concerns of their constituents? Right, and, and you, you've drawn, I think, correctly what the tension is. Um, the potential for abuse, and yet these are the most important advocates of their constituents. Uh, aldermen have the smallest districts of any of our elected officials. They probably know their constituents better than any other elected official, and they're surely better known by their constituents. You know, in a community, people will know their alderman and the mayor, maybe, and not their state rep or their state senator or their county board commissioner or whoever. So I think that's really important. Um, you know, let me just say, I think the, the critical thing, first of all, is the mayor have a vision for the city. And I've talked about the importance of investing in our neighborhoods. You know, we, we focus on downtown, and that's right, because it's the economic, one of the economic engines of the state. But we got to focus on our neighborhoods as well. And I've talked about schools and investment in affordable housing and economic development and, and safer streets. We really have to make those investments if we're going to have a, a strong city. You know, we can't... We can't think that we can we can address the challenges of violence without investing in our neighborhoods. So it's a, a combination of a sort of police and community uh, engagement strategy, supporting community-based organizations that do the difficult work of, of trying to stem the violence. It's investing in those neighborhoods. Um, and it's understanding that this is a public health crisis. <laughs> you know, if you are a young person who's shot, and it's usually young men, the chances are tremendous that you'll be back in our emergency room in the next two or three years shot again. And so we have a program called Healing Hurt People, and we try to engage the young person not just in physical healing but in addressing, I guess, uh, some of the challenges to their, to their spiritual health, um, providing them with wraparound services, behavioral health services, and trying to, to work with them to change the arc of their lives. Uh, and if we can keep them in that program for 18 months, <laughs> um, we have a very good chance of keeping them out of the hospital, out of the emergency room again with a gunshot wound. President Preckwinkle, I have just two more things for you, and then we're going to let you go. First, thank you for being on today. Um, who who are you looking at as your treasurer between the two candidates? Who 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 does Tony Preckwinkle want to serve with her? Uh, I, I have I have said that I would support Representative uh, Melissa Conyers Urban. And, and we're working with her campaign. Fair, fair enough. And, and finally, um, I had, I've interviewed you a few times. And uh, back at WHPK, back in the old era of the, <laughs> the, of the show, 
I asked you about running for mayor and you were really clear with me that that was not something you had wanted to do. What changed your mind this time? Well, you know, I, um, I, I, I've spent eight years at the county, um, and when I came in the door, I said, there's two things I want to do. I want to work on criminal justice reform, and uh, I want to work on the sustainability of our health care system. And in the last eight years, we've made tremendous projects, progress on, on that agenda. Our health care system serves 320,000 people with health care coverage for the first time. And, uh, and, you know, I believe that health care is a right, not a privilege. And on the second uh, subject, we've made real progress on criminal justice reform. Our bond court reforms have led to a reduction in the jail population of about 40%, from about 10,000 to, to less than 6,000. And that means that people accused of nonviolent crimes are no longer uh, held in jail simply because they can't pay a couple hundred or a couple thousand dollars in bonds. They're out in the community going to work and supporting themselves and their family. And that's really, that's really critical. That's that work to, to change bond court and our reliance on cash bonds, which is so detrimental to poor black and brown defendants. Um, so we've made real progress on the things that I, I promised that I would work on when I came in the door, and, and uh, this is why I love my city, and this is a tremendous opportunity to serve. President Preckwinkle, thank you so much for being on the show today. Really thank appreciate so it. And uh, best of luck on Tuesday. And uh, hey, President Preckwinkle, where's the party? <laughs> Uh, we're, we're still to be determined. Okay, I'll, I'll, I'll be looking out for that. All right, thank you. Thanks, Thanks so much for being on the show. Take it easy. This week on The Trump Diaries, Robert Mueller apparently says there's no collusion with Russia, but pointedly declines to clear Trump on obstruction of justice charges. Water carrier William Barr hurries to stop prosecution of Trump. Trump goes after Obamacare again, and revelations about the length of the Mueller report lead to questions of a cover-up. These are The Trump Diaries. Day 791, March 21st. It has been revealed seven of Trump's close aides illegally used personal email for government business. Jared Kushner and Ivanka Trump used WhatsApp and personal email accounts to conduct official government business, according to Elijah Cummings, the chairman of the House Oversight and Reform Committee in violation of the Presidential Records Act. Kushner communicated with Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman using WhatsApp. KD McFarlane and Steve Bannon also conducted official business using personal accounts. Trump, of course, famously railed against Hillary Clinton for her missing emails. Trump signed an executive order to deny colleges some federal research and education grants unless they support free speech as defined by the administration. Trump cited complaints by conservatives who have alleged their views are suppressed on campuses. It is unclear how the order on, quote, improving free inquiry, transparency, and accountability on campus would work. Trump has nominated his former campaign advisor Stephen Moore to the Federal Reserve. Moore founded the Conservative Club for Growth and wrote Trump's signature tax plan. He is also a close friend of Trump's economic advisor, Larry Kudlow, and served as an advisor on his campaign. Moore is widely viewed as a crackpot economist and a highly partisan figure. It is unclear if Moore can be confirmed to the Fed. And Trump has charged his own re-election campaign $1.3 million for rent, food, lodging, and other expenses at Trump-owned properties since he took office. It is unclear if Trump has paid going rates. Federal regulations do allow candidates to put campaign money into their own businesses, but only if they're paying by the book. Day 792, March 22nd. 
Robert Mueller submitted his final report on Trump and Russia to the Attorney General. Mueller's investigation led to criminal charges against 34 people, including six former Trump associates and advisors. 24 people charged by Mueller are Russian nationals. No further indictments are expected this time. Trump canceled sanctions aimed at North Korea one day after they were imposed by his own treasury. Sarah Huckabee Sanders said Trump removed the sanctions, quote, because he likes North Korean dictator Kim Jong-un. Trump said in a follow-up statement they were not necessary. The Treasury Department had announced sanctions against two Chinese shipping companies for their alleged role in evading U.N. sanctions against North Korea. And the commandant of the U.S. Marine Corps said that sending troops to the U.S.-Mexico border and funding transfers under Trump's emergency declaration has posed an unacceptable risk to Marine Corps combat readiness and solvency. Marine Corps General Robert Neller said the unplanned, unbudgeted deployment orders have forced him to cancel or reduce other training in five countries and delay urgent base repairs. As part of a manic tweet storm, Trump warned that, quote, people will not stand for it if Mueller's report makes him look bad. Trump complained that a deputy that didn't get any votes appoints a man that didn't get any votes. That is referring to Rod Rosenstein's appointment of Robert Mueller. Trump also falsely claimed that Mueller was best friends with James Comey, who succeeded Mueller as an FBI director. Trump then called for his attorney general to do what's fair and open investigations into Hillary Clinton, Comey, James Clapper, and John Brennan. Trump claimed he's been treated very unfairly by Mueller's team, while nobody does anything about all the stone-cold crimes committed by former Obama officials. Trump then accused Comey, Clapper, and Brennan of telling absolute lies to Congress. Day 793, March 23rd. The Supreme Court will not hear an appeal from an unidentified foreign government-owned company that was resisting a subpoena from Robert Mueller's grand journey. The justices left intact a federal appeals court ruling that said the company had to comply with the subpoena. The company now faces fines in excess of $2 million. It is unclear where that subpoena goes with the Mueller investigation concluded. Trump signed a proclamation formally recognizing Israel's authority over the long-disputed Golan Heights. That proclamation is viewed as a political gift of Bibi Netanyahu, that's Israel's embattled prime minister, who is facing a tough election battle. And Trump blamed Federal Reserve Chairman Jerome Powell for the economy's failure to exceed 4% economic growth last year. In an interview, Trump claimed that the Fed's raise of rates had led to the slowdown in growth. Most economists instead point to Trump's tariffs and trade wars. Day 794, March 24th. According to a lawyer from Attorney General William Barr, the Mueller investigation has concluded neither Trump nor any of his aides conspired or coordinated with the Russian government's 2016 election interference. The counsel, however, said that they lacked sufficient evidence to establish that Trump obstructed justice, but pointedly also did not exonerate him. Ultimately, a half dozen former Trump aides were indicted or convicted of crimes, most for conspiracy or lying to investigators. Barr's letter said that, quote, despite multiple offers from Russian-affiliated officials to assist the Trump campaign, the special counsel did not find evidence of agreement tacit or expressed between the Trump campaign and the Russian government on election interference. Barr's letter did not use the word collusion, though Republican lawmakers were quick to declare there was no collusion. Barr said that he and Rod Rosenstein separately concluded that the evidence Mueller gathered, quote, is not sufficient to establish that the president committed an obstruction of justice offense. Barr stressed this conclusion was not based on the Justice Department view that the Constitution bars indicting a sitting president. Said Trump, quote, after a long investigation, after so many people have been so badly hurt, after not looking at the other side where a lot of bad things happened, a lot of horrible things happened, a lot of very bad things happened for our country, it was just announced there was no collusion with Russia, the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. It was a complete and total exoneration. It's a shame that our country had to go through this. It's a shame that your president has had to go through this. This was an illegal takedown that failed, and hopefully somebody's going to be looking at the other side. Worth noting, Trump was not exonerated. 
Day 795, March 25th. The House failed to overturn Trump's veto of legislation blocking his national emergency declaration at the southern border. The failed effort leaves Trump's declaration at the southwestern border intact despite bipartisan passage of the resolution to terminate that declaration. Meanwhile, the Department of Defense transferred $1 billion for new border barrier construction along the U.S.-Mexico border. The Pentagon also gave Congress a list of $12.8 billion in approved construction projects that could be redirected to fund a border wall. And Trump's nominee to lead the Interior Department blocked a report on the effect of pesticides on endangered species. David Bernhardt, a former lobbyist and oil industry lawyer, was the Deputy Secretary of the Interior at the time. He suppressed a report that found that two pesticides, Maltheon and Chlorpheros, were so toxic that they, quote, jeopardized the continued existence of more than 1,200 endangered birds, fish, and other animals. Bernhardt was grilled during his confirmation hearing over that report. Day 796, March 26th. In a major shift, Trump is now attempting to have the entire Affordable Care Act struck down in court. The Justice Department said he's backing a Texas judge controversial December ruling that the health care law known as Obamacare is unconstitutional. Should that ruling be upheld, it would immediately terminate health care coverage for millions of people by getting rid of publicly subsidized health insurance plans sold on exchanges, the expansion of Medicaid, protections for people with pre-existing conditions, and rules letting children stay in their parents' insurance until the age of 26. Trump claimed subsequently Republicans would be, quote, the party of great health care. In a little notice development, Robert Mueller's grand jury is continuing despite the end of his investigation. That indicates further indictments may in fact be coming. And George Papadopoulos formally applied for a pardon from Trump. The former Trump campaign advisor served a 12-day prison sentence for lying to the FBI. Michael Avenetti was arrested on charges of trying to extort $22 million from Nike. The former lawyer for Stormy Daniels was also charged in a separate federal case of embezzling a client's money and of defrauding a bank in Mississippi. Trump has repeatedly asked aides to limit federal funding for Puerto Rico. Trump has also privately suggested he will not approve any additional help for Puerto Rico beyond food stamp money. A senior official said, quote, Trump doesn't want another single dollar going to the island. Day 797, March 27th. Trump claimed to have a plan far better than Obamacare if the Supreme Court strikes down the entire Affordable Care Act, adding, quote, I understand health care now. Trump had famously said, quote, who knew health care could be so complex? Trump also said again the Republican Party will now be the party of great health care. Republican officials say that Trump, in fact, has no health care plan at all. Trump's move was a political gift to Democrats who pounced on the announcement. The move also caught Republicans flat-footed. House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy had told Trump his decision made no sense without a plan in place to replace Obamacare heading into the 2020 elections. However, his chief of staff, Mick Mulvaney, reportedly pushed for the move at a staff meeting. Education Secretary Betsy DeVos called for limiting $17.6 million in federal funding for the Special Olympics, saying, quote, the federal government cannot fund every worthy program, particularly ones that enjoy robust support from private donations. DeVos then blamed the media and some members of Congress for, quote, falsehoods and fully misrepresenting the facts. In fact, they had accurately reported that Betsy DeVos wants to eliminate $17.6 million in federal funding for the Special Olympics. Day 798, March 28th. It has been revealed the Robert Mueller report is actually 300 pages long, casting doubt on the veracity of William Barr's four-page summary. The revelation indicates that Mueller went well beyond the kind of bare-bones summary required by the Justice Department regulation governing his appointment, and it detailed his conclusions at length. Democrats all but accused Barr of covering up damaging information the report might contain, particularly focusing on Mueller's note that his report did not exonerate Trump. However, Mitch McConnell blocked a second attempt in the Senate to make the Mueller report public. 
Senate Judiciary Chair Dianne Feinstein attempted to get unanimous consent to pass a Senate version of the non-bonding resolution that passed in the House with a vote of 420 to nothing. McConnell, however, said he would support a Republican effort to investigate alleged political bias against Trump at the Justice Department and the FBI, led by Lindsey Graham. Trump called on House Intelligence Chair Adam Schiff to resign. Trump said Adam Schiff, quote, spent two years knowingly and unlawfully lying and leaking and therefore should be forced to resign from Congress. However, Schiff continues to maintain that, quote, undoubtedly there was collusion and says his committee will continue to look into the counterintelligence aspects of Mueller's investigation. Trump again threatened to close the U.S.-Mexico border. Quote, Mexico is doing nothing to help stop the flow of illegal immigrants to our country. They are all talk and no action. He then singled out Honduras, Guatemala, and El Salvador for, quote, having taking our money for years but not doing anything about migration. May close the southern border. Trump tweeted that the FBI and the Department of Justice will review the outrageous decision by prosecutors to drop all charges against actor Jesse Smollett. Trump called the decision, quote, an embarrassment to our nation. 78% of Republicans who watch Fox News say Trump is the most successful president in history. 79% of Republican Fox News viewers say they believe the FBI and U.S. intelligence agencies are also trying to sabotage Trump. However, 56% of Americans don't believe that Trump and his campaign have been exonerated of conclusion. And 50% of Americans also believe that Trump did collude with Russia. These are the Trump Diaries. Chuck Murr spoke with Flint Taylor, author of The Torture Machine, Racism and Police Violence in Chicago. Taylor discussed prosecuting the infamous John Burge, the arrogance of the Chicago police, and how a state-sanctioned campaign of terror has scarred our city. This is Hell airs every Sunday at 10 a.m. Could Daly, with one word to Angarola, could have he stopped the torture? Could have he done something about ending John Burge's reign of torture? Yes, um, what you, when, that piece that you just read and the prior piece, th- that was the torture of the of the men that I mentioned earlier who were wrongfully picked were, up. Right, right. This was like days before um, Wilson brothers were picked up. Yes, so obviously if, if, if Devine, who was the first assistant at that point, uh, or Daly, or Kunkel, who was third in command, any of those state's attorneys who were obviously uh, on notice had had gone down there and instead of encouraging the torture, had said, look, said what Laverty said, which is, you know, I, I, I don't want to dirty up this case with torture. Let's deal. They had an eyewitness. They didn't really need to do what they did. They did it out of revenge. They did it out of racism. They did it out of anger. Um, and... Uh, Daly was later, just a short time later, after Wilson was tortured and, and a doctor was was outraged by seeing the injuries on Wilson and told Brzezek, the superintendent, look, something has to be done about this torture. Brzezek, the superintendent, by covering his rear end, uh, then gave Daly the information, look, these guys were tortured, uh, Wilson brothers. And Daly, instead of at that point acting and could have stopped uh, 10 years of torture by mer- moving on Burge at that time, uh, covered it up and commended Burge uh, and proceeded with the evidence of torture to uh, convict the Wilson brothers. This also happened during the time of the Jane Byrne administration. Who do you hold more responsible, Byrne or Daly, for the tortures? Well, I have to hold Daly more responsible in terms of the entire 
scope and breadth of the uh, scandal. Um, the, the torture machine uh, is called that not only because of the black box that's depicted on the cover, uh, which was the electric shock box that Burge used, but because uh, the torture machine uh, is the daily machine, is the democratic machine. And of course, um, Jane Byrne was a piece of that machine as well, and she was actively encouraging that uh, terroristic uh, um, attack on the black community, looking for the, the killers of the cops. But Daly uh, was involved from the early 80s uh, till the, uh, the day that he uh, left office in covering up and facilitating uh, the torture scandal. So he is ultimately much more responsible than Jane Byrne if we are assessing a responsibility here. You write Andrew Wilson was then taken to a small interrogation room with a window that faced south onto 91st Street. Under the window stood an old-fashioned ribbed steam radiator, which Andrew, who had only a first-grade education, referred to as a heaterator. On each side of the window above the radiator had a hand, was a handcuff ring. Across the street was a Chicago Fire Department station. Could the people in the fire department see the torture going on? How open of a secret was police torture in Chicago? Well, they, I don't think they could see it. But uh, as John Conroy, who is one of the heroes of this story, John Conroy being a reader, uh, investigative reporter, uh, he, he covered uh, the two trials that we did in 1989. Uh, and, and he then uh, took the evidence that that we had developed and, and did his own investigation. And he called his article, which came out in early 1990, The House of Screams. And he called it that because uh, I think he spoke to some of those fire people. And although they were kind of tight-lipped, they did admit, uh, and people in the neighboring houses admitted that they heard screams coming out of uh, the police headquarters that Burge uh, ran there, and hence the House of Screams being uh, the detective area, Area 2, where the torture took place. Uh, so the fire people probably didn't see it, uh, but they heard it. So were the police who committed violence so arrogant, so certain that they would never be caught or punished, even if they were caught, that they became sloppy in covering their tracks? Or are they so good at police violence that they do an exceptional job of not leaving any traces of police violence? Well, I think uh, there was a tremendous amount of arrogance. Uh, the arrogance that was shown in the murders of Fred Hampton and Mark Clark, uh, for example, uh, when they left the apartment open uh, for us to go there and, and take evidence and show the true nature of, of, of the uh, assassination, um, that kind of reflected their arrogance. Uh, they thought they could call it a shootout and that would be the end of it. The, the press would buy it, which they did initially, uh, and people would, would, would buy it and, and that would be the story. Um, but with regard to torture, it was an open secret. Uh, yes, they had to have a tremendous amount of arrogance, and they were sloppy from time to time. Burge was very angry because of the fact that they uh, left marks on Andrew Wilson's face. But then again, he was uh, in charge of the uh, electric shock torturing, which pushed Andrew against that heaterator that you read about. Mm -hmm. So. Uh, when he was electric shocked, he was handcuffed across the, the, the radiator, and those ribs burned his chest in a pattern 
uh, that was uh, that showed the the radiator. Wow. And so th- those were physical injuries. Without those physical injuries, the Andrew Wilson case probably never would have led to a uh, an Illinois Supreme Court decision uh, that overturned his death sentence. Uh, and he ended up uh, with a, a life sentence uh, on uh, on on appeal, um, but they were very arrogant. They figured they could get away with this, and why not? The prosecutors were in the station houses, were taking the statements uh, when they brought Andrew Wilson into the prosecutor, uh, who was there, who was uh, higher up in the system. Uh, and uh, he said, are you ready to confess? And Andrew said, uh, they're torturing me. I'm not going to uh, confess. This state's attorney said, get the jag off out of here. Uh, so they were not, their fingerprints were all over this. They used the confessions to prosecute, to send people to death row. Those were the prosecutors and, of course, the judges. The judges, of course, were very complicit. <laughs> Jerry Mead Lucero interviewed the members of the Chicago Symphony Orchestra, now in their third week on the picket lines. The orchestra members talked about equity and justice, the support they have received from across the country, and giving free concerts on the sidewalk. Labor Express airs every Sunday at 8 p.m. I'm Steve Lester. I'm a bass player. What are the major sticking points in contract negotiations at this point? I think you'd have to say it's economics. Um, uh, the uh, wage scale and uh, pension benefit. Um, the CSO board says that the current pension plan would, quote, endanger the financial health of the institution. Is this true? Well, I, you know, you, you can look at those statistics. We are trying to verify exactly what that pension obligation is. And we're also trying to verify under how, what terms, how many years that has to be paid. Um, it's safe to say that we're not in danger at this moment and in going into the future if the pension is well funded it can be uh, sustained. Um, this is interesting I just heard this the other day Jim Maybe, who is a, um, a, a trustee on the CSO board is also a founding member of the Chicago High School for the Arts and uh, those teachers are in a similar contract negotiation where he's trying to uh, cut back or uh, restrict pensions for those teachers and yet it sounds like he's doing something very similar with the CSO. Have you, are you aware of that? Have you heard about that? I thank you for, for letting me know. I'm not aware of it and I will certainly try to reach out to those teachers. I think that's a, a, a terrible thing. Yeah, and it's a high school for the arts as well. It's not just any high school. It's a high school that focuses on the arts. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, no, I'm thank, thank you for, for letting us know. The CSO music director, Ricardo Muti, says he supports the musicians. He came out with a statement as well. Um, what has he expressed to you as musicians in recent rehearsals? That same support. Maestro Muti is very consistent in his support for culture, in his support for the arts, and his support for his orchestra, his, the musicians of the Chicago Symphony Orchestra. We're very grateful for that because his support inspires us and it represents um, a true understanding of the value of culture to a society. You know, He talks about it quite frequently in front of the audience. He'll turn around and talk about a particular piece and also about, about how it affects the general culture. So it's, it's a, a very important thing. 
Um, Chicago has seen an uptick in labor activism and union organizing in the past couple years. The Chicago Teachers Union is a notable example. Um, and even in uh, traditionally organized workers, such as the hotel workers. We had the citywide hotel worker strike about a year ago that was very was very successful. Right. Has that inform has that activity informed um, your membership, how you're uh, how you're going into negotiations, how you've come to this decision. Has has that activity influenced your members in any way? Well, first of all, we're very proud of the activity of other unions in Chicago and in the country. But I, I also have to say that we've been a pretty active group all along. Uh, we've had a strike in 2012, a strike in 1991. We've organized. Uh, we have a strong membership. Our unit is strong. Um, so I, I think we're in pretty good shape. How is this strike different or similar to the one in 2012? Some of the, the basic issues are the same. And many of us involved in that negotiations in 2012 felt basically that we, we just kicked the can down the road. And sooner or later, there was going to be this reckoning. Are we doing yet? 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 The first full moon of every month is given a name. Sure. Uh, and that name of the full moon sort of gives you an idea of what's in store for the rest of the month. For example, the first full moon of January is called the wolf moon. Um, and that's because um, in January, lousy with wolves. In Florida, it's more like coyotes, but but they, they just go crazy mm-hmm. in January. I don't know what it is. I don't think science will ever know why. But it just – it happens. Mm-hmm. But more uh, more ex- explainable perhaps is um, the first full moon of this month, uh, which I believe happened earlier in the week. Um, that's called the worm moon. Sure. Right. And there, Are they all called names of animals? No, we'll get to that. We'll get okay. to that. But um, the worm moon is actually quite interesting. Um, it's – believe it or not, it's not about earthworms. Um, you see oh. in – in um, the warmer states, um, this month is when the rains start coming down really hard, sure. right? And you get all of this sort of like stagnant water and you get all of these um, uh, puddles and what have you. Mm-hmm. Um, and what that allows is, is for the proliferation of uh, parasites, um, your sure. mosquitoes, um, your uh, your water bugs, mm-hmm. um, your sandics. Um, termites, yeah, the whole the whole nine yards, and um, so historically speaking, now these are names that came from two hundred years ago, you know, agrarian past. Mm-hmm. Um, specifically, uh, the reason it's called the worm moon is because around this month is when you get worms. Um, I see. yeah, uh, so like tapeworms, tapeworms, ringworms, pinworms, all of the worms. Sure. There's a lot of worms. Um, thankfully. Uh, due to modern technology, we don't have the same amount of worms, but that that's an example of what to expect in the month. Are we doing yet? 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 The Lump and Week in Review is produced by the staff and volunteers of WLPN LP Chicago, the community radio of the future. The Week in Review is overseen by Jamie Trecker, voiceovers by Shanna Van Volt, additional production by Cole Eisenberg, Julie Wu, Sergio Rodriguez, Neil Gaynor, Lane Gerbig, Alexander Jerry, John Piotrowski, Ari Shellist, and Annie Klein. Live music production by Ari Shellist. The Lumpen theme, background, and interstitial music is by Mike Perkins. The Lumpen radio sting is by Dan Jugal. For more information on Lumpen Radio, visit lumpenradio.com. Yeah.